Welcome to Tiski Sour. We're going to talk about the information war which is going on over Ukraine at the moment. Both the West and Russia playing a part in it. We've got a couple of labor stories for you. Angela Rayner wants to shoot to kill. Keir Starmer wants to shoot anyone on the left of the Labour Party, uh, metaphorically. And we also have a Downing Street Party story for you. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael, I'm doing super great. We managed to weather the storm. How are you doing? You good? Yeah, I'm well. Well, you're on the south coast, aren't you? So you should have had, did you have a very like dramatic scenes or was it much of a muchness? Not particularly. I mean, people were saying, oh, wow, the sea's crashing against the, the flood defences. Well, that's kind of what they're for. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm being quite flippant. I mean, it sounded quite violent. I didn't take the dog out for a walk, for instance, but, you know, my, my wife took the dog out for a, a walk. I couldn't go to the dentist. It was shut. I mean, it, it seemed bad, but I, I don't think we were the worst hit. No, it sounds like there were some pretty bad things happening. From what I saw in London, it seemed worse, but maybe that's just because the buildings are taller. Maybe we need shorter buildings for the next time this happens. It's been a confusing few days for anyone trying to follow the standoff between Russia and Ukraine. At the start of the week, Western leaders were ramping up the possibility of an imminent invasion, and a time frame was even set with multiple outlets reporting that the early hours of Wednesday morning would see the launch of a Russian invasion. This tweet from The Sun was posted on Tuesday. They accompanied the warning of a 1am invasion with breathless footage of tanks shooting missiles. It was a story apparently fed by US intelligence. But then 1am on Wednesday passed, no invasion was forthcoming. In fact, when Wednesday arrived, headlines informed us Russia had pulled back some troops from Ukraine's border. The Russian Defence Ministry claimed a number of battalions were returning to their bases after pre-planned drills. European stocks rose, fear of war subsided. But before the close of the day, US and UK intelligence pushed back against Russia's claim of a de-escalation. The West accused Russia of lying about troop withdrawals. The New York Times reported, A senior American official who refused to be quoted by name told reporters that far from winding down its deployment, Moscow had added more than 7,000 combatants. The American official directly accused Russia of lying, saying there was fresh evidence it was mobilizing for war. Those briefings were then echoed by Joe Biden the following day. How high is the threat of a Russian invasion right now? It's very high. Why? It's very high because they have not, they have not moved any of their troops out. They've moved more troops in. Number one, number two, we have reason to believe that they are engaged in a false flag operation. They have an excuse to go in. Every indication we have is they're prepared to go into Ukraine, attack Ukraine. Number one. Number two, I've been waiting for a response from Putin for my letter. That my response to him is come to that Moscow embassy. They're faxing it here. Not faction, they're sending it here. I have not read it yet. I cannot comment on it. Have you just on it in any way? Oh, yes. Yeah. Is your sense that this is going to happen now? Yes. Not, I, my sense this will happen within the next several days. What are the things that Are there any diplomatic paths still available? Yes, there is. There's a third diplomatic path. That's why I asked Senator, uh, Senator Secretary Blinken to go to the United Nations and make his statement today. He'll lay out what that path is. I've laid out a path to Putin as well, uh, on, I think, Sunday. And so there is a path. There is a way through this. Are you, you going to call Putin I'm not calling Putin. I have no plans to call Putin right now.
British intelligence on Russia's plans mirrored that coming from the United States. Jim Hockenhill, British chief of defence intelligence, said this week that contrary to their claims, Russia continues to build up military capabilities near Ukraine. Russia has the military mass in place to conduct an invasion of Ukraine. And the UK Ministry of Defence even tweeted an image showing the possible routes a Russian invasion could take. They suggest an invasion could include, as its first phase, a ground movement of Russian troops moving in on Kiev and battalions moving into the east of Ukraine. In phase two, Russian troops would take the rest of the country. The key comes with a caveat. It reads, warning, ground movement indicators are for illustrative purposes only. So how should we interpret all of this intelligence? If we were told an invasion would happen on Wednesday and it didn't, should we dismiss the rest as hyperbole? Well, on one level, US intelligence getting a date wrong doesn't necessarily mean the rest of what they're saying is rubbish. But even people deep within the US-UK security establishment have expressed doubts about the strength of the Western intelligence being fed to the press and public. Sir John Sawyers is a former chief of MI6. He gave an interview to Ben Judah from the Atlantic Council this week. Asked about the West's use of declassified intelligence in this current standoff, he said the following. Putin's Russia has been rather skillful at shaping narratives, <clears throat> at using uh, their arguments and, and at times their propaganda uh, in order to shape opinion, not partly in their own country, but more, uh, even more so uh, in the West. Um, and I think what uh, the US administration in particular has been quite adept at in this crisis has been, first of all, corralling the West and coordinating and orchestrating the, uh, a common Western response. And secondly, not allowing Putin to have it all his own way on the, on the airwaves. Now, you talk about intelligence. I think actually <clears throat> the, the, these are not sort of gems from, uh, from deeply sensitive uh, uh, agent reporting. <clears throat> this is uh, uh, what has been released, the, the, uh, uh, the idea that um, Putin might uh, want to dislodge Zelensky and replace him with a puppet government, uh, or that uh, he's going to contrive uh, uh, a pretext uh, for a Russian intervention in the uh, in the east of Ukraine, um, these are based on a on a growing understanding and analysis of Putin rather than deep uh, secret intelligence reports. And I think wrapping them up as intelligence and adding a few sort of juicy names uh, to the reporting just gives uh, uh, it just gives a uh, uh, some some good stories from the media and helps push back against the narrative. It's a skillful use. Of, um, of information and analysis to, um, uh, to uh, uh, turn the tables on Putin and his own ability to, uh, to, to uh, dominate the airwaves. Later in the interview, Ben Judah asked a question which made the significance of all this even more explicit. It would seem as if the uh, Western governments might have exaggerated a bit the prospect of a full-blooded invasion of Ukraine. Well, what I do think is that um, it was easier uh, for Western governments to bring uh, uh, together their agreed response and to stand up to Putin in the face of that sort of threat. Um, uh, and as President Biden perhaps rather infelicitously uh, described, uh, you know, he got into trouble when he started speculating about what would happen if there was a minor incursion into Ukraine in one of his earlier broadcasts on this. I think that is more difficult, um, uh, uh, but it's also the more likely scenario that a combination of, of cyber 
of uh, of limited intrusion uh, of um, uh, uh, of political steps uh, associated with uh, with the military um, uh, military maneuvers uh, uh, as he did in 2014 in Ukraine and as he did in 2008 in in Georgia is probably a more likely scenario. I think if he'd gone all the way to Kiev and you know he could still he could prove me wrong tomorrow um I don't know what's going through Putin's head but uh, uh but watching him over the last 20 years or so I think it's not really in character for him to invade and occupy a whole country um uh, 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 and and uh, think that that is going to be a success the, they had their own experience in Afghanistan as we we have had uh, since then um uh, and uh, uh, the uh, 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 he has watched very closely what the fate of um, of the Americans and the coalition in, in Iraq was. It's quite easy to drive to Baghdad and overthrow the government. It's a whole lot harder to hold the country together over the next 10 or 20 years. So according to that former intelligence chief, yes, what was in fact analysis might have been dressed up as intelligence. And yes, the risks might have been exaggerated, but that was to build a broader coalition. If we just said, or if the if the West just said, if America just said there might be a minor incursion in Ukraine, it would have been harder to unite the West. Now, I find this a little bit worrying because we've we've seen how intelligence was used to build a coalition before WMDs in Iraq. Not that you know this is necessarily a repeat of that. It's potentially more complex. Aaron, I want to bring you in on this. I mean, what do you make of the breathless coverage we've seen of of Ukraine Russia over the past week, and and what did you make of those comments from the former MI6 chief? It's been really quick moving. So, I mean, it, you would be very uh, unwise, I think, to sort of make a pronouncement today and uh, think it's going to last longer than, say, 72 hours. I think, you know, it's still a very dynamic situation, events unfolding from 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 effectively day to day. Even, you know, in the last few hours, there's been an explosion in, I think, Donetsk, uh, which is causing a great deal of discussion and, and, and in terms of what that might catalyze going forward, was it a false flag and so on. Talking about that video, Michael, I mean, wow, that was really, really, really insightful. And I was very surprised that a former head of MI6, Britain's spy agency, would so openly talk about the reason behind what was going on here. This was an information war. This was effectively a propaganda effort by the British government, various Western allies with their media to effectively mislead domestic audiences. Now, the argument would be, which he says there, in some ways over, some ways less so, Putin does this, so we have to do it too. We are misleading people in order to avert a, a material military escalation between Russia and Ukraine, and potentially that may involve at some point Western allies as well. So we certainly don't want to do that. This is by far the better of two evils. I mean, that's one logic, but still, it is deeply worrying for me, Michael, that a former head of the security services can so openly talk about the instrumentalization of the media to advance the interests of the state. The media is meant to be independent of the political power of the state and its various agencies in order to hold it accountable. So this to me is really worrying. And the way he's talking about the media is really not that different to how you see in authoritarian regimes. Now, I'm not saying we live in an authoritarian regime. And by the way, the reporting of the US and the UK going into Iraq, Afghanistan 20 years ago wasn't particularly good either. It's not like things have really deteriorated in that, in that respect. But to be talking about it so overtly in public really struck me, really struck me. And I was surprised, you know, until the 1990s, I think, I don't know the specifics here, but MI6 didn't even really admit it existed. It's not even called MI6 now, you know, the, I think it's called SIS or something. Goodness knows. But it's the external uh, spy agency for the United Kingdom. 
And now you have somebody, you know, what, what next, Michael? Is he going to go on TikTok, say, uh, talking about how the UK helps overthrow uh, regimes it doesn't like overseas? So, yes, the public nature of it was very surprising and very insightful. It's very odd if you're fighting an information war to then give a live commentary of it. It feels like it potentially undermines the point. For like the first rule of information warfare should probably be don't talk about information warfare. But, you know, maybe the fact that they're talking about it, that is a, maybe that suggests how inherently transparent they want to be. I want to stick with this issue of intelligence briefings. I've got another clip for you because we've, we've shown you the former MI6 chief. On Radio 4 this morning, Nick Robinson interviewed a former chief of the US Army. Michael Mullen was chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff between 2007 and 2011. That level of detail uh, released publicly and put on the front page of every uh, uh, media outlet uh, in the world uh, is a much different tactic. And it's a tactic designed to let the world know uh, and let Putin know uh, we all know what's going on, whether that'll have a deterrent impact uh, is still out there. You know, the war hasn't started. Hopefully it won't. There is a risk, though, isn't there, after the failed intelligence about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, that it allows Putin to claim that it's all false, that it's all made up, that the West's intelligence can't be trusted. The intelligence back then uh, really was used to start a war. The intelligence that's being released now is attempting to do the exact opposite, to make sure a war, a very devastating war, costly war, uh, will not start. So the difference between the intelligence we shared around Iraq and the intelligence shared around Ukraine isn't that the old intelligence was false and we've now learned our lesson, but rather back then we were using flimsy intelligence to start a war and now we're using flimsy intelligence to stop one. Not particularly reassuring. And whatever the motive, this slapdash approach is making a lot of people look quite silly. Melinda Haring is Deputy Director of the Atlantic Council, one of the most prestigious and well-funded pro-NATO think tanks. Last Friday, she tweeted, Putin has big weekend plans in Ukraine. One, he's going to cut power and heat, knock out Ukrainian Navy and Air Force, kill general staff and hit them with cyber attack. Two, then install pro-Russian president and three, resort to full-scale military invasion if Ukraine doesn't give in. Seven days have now passed and none of those things have happened. And it's not just critics of US foreign policy that are getting frustrated with this gung-ho approach. David Arakamia is the head of President Zelensky's Servant of the People Party. He said this this week, I think when this phase disappears in two or three weeks, we should do a retrospective analysis of how large, very well-known media began to disseminate information worse than Skabiva and Solovyov, two Russian state propagandists. Frank Fakes in CNN, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, we must study this because these are elements of a hybrid war. The hysteria is now costing the country two to three billion dollars every month. We can't borrow in foreign markets because the rates there are crazy. Many exporters refuse. Every day we count the losses of the economy and then distribute this information to our partners through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs because they must understand when someone decides to move the embassy to Lviv, they must understand that such news will cost the Ukrainian economy several hundred million dollars. Of course, while the Ukrainians may be critical of hysteria in the West, they are even more concerned by the disinformation campaign coming from Russia. Their foreign secretary today 
tweeted, We categorically refute Russian disinformation reports on Ukraine's alleged offensive operations or acts of sabotage in chemical production facilities. Ukraine does not conduct or plan any such actions in the Donbass. We are fully committed to diplomatic conflict resolution only. Russia's disinformation, of course, goes beyond claims about sabotaging production facilities. This week, Putin went so far as to accuse the Ukrainians of genocide in the Donbass. And that's a claim that echoes commentary being broadcast across Russian media. Margarita Simonyan is head of the state-funded broadcaster RT. She recently said on a talk show on the Russia One channel, It's a war between the Ukrainian government and its own people. People are dying there every day. Thousands of civilians died there. Thousands of children lost their limbs there, buried in little coffins. Go there once, you'll change your attitude completely, and you'll understand that Russia can't help but stop this war. Do we have to wait until they organize concentration camps out there, until they start poisoning their people with gas? This is, of course, nonsense, and it appears to be a clear attempt to drum up support in Russia if Putin does decide to invade Ukraine. And there has been an escalation on this front today. Max Seddon is Moscow bureau chief at the Financial Times. He tweeted, separatists in East Ukraine have announced they're evacuating the entire civilian population to Russia, citing increased shelling on the front lines. Pushilin claims Zelensky will give Ukraine's army the order to attack, sounding more and more like a potential Russian casus belli. So Pushilin there being uh, a leader of, of one of the separatists in eastern Ukraine. Aaron... There is clearly a very, very intense information war going on. Ukraine is stuck in the middle. I mean, in a way, we're all stuck in the middle. How, how do we make sense of the claims and counterclaims that we're hearing? The default should be, Michael, that you're just very sceptical of any single news source. That should be the default. And when you see in legacy media talk of intelligence sources, okay, well, what's the intelligence source? Is it signals intelligence? Is it literally the interception of information within, say, you know, the Russian military establishment. That's a big deal, right? If you intercept signals intelligence, that's a massive deal. Is it human intelligence? You know, the arguments for going to war in Iraq were based on human intelligence. Now, of course, people can peddle their own agendas around the reality. In Iraq, it was about WMD. Multiple, multiple people lied. In one instance, that was to basically get citizenship in Germany. There was a former nuclear scientist basically lied his pants off in order to integrate himself with people who really exercised a great deal of control over him. It could be domestic political interests trying to fight their corner, and they think that regime change suits them, as was the case with certain people in Iraq. So hu human intelligence is always very dodgy. What we're seeing here, though, Michael, is when, when you hear in the media, and legacy media, intelligence, often it doesn't seem to relate to two of these, either of these, rather. So you go back to the original video recording we saw of the Atlantic Council. By the way, the Atlantic Council, who's on their advisory, um, advisory committee? It's the son-in-law of uh, Kuchma, a guy called Pinchuk, who is a, a, a domestic oligarch who has massive interest in the media. So again, if you're talking about a, a non-governmental organization which has an impartial overview of what's going on in the Ukraine, I would suggest it shouldn't be somebody whose own advisory council includes a Ukrainian national who's married to the daughter of a former president of Ukraine. Again, just my personal opinion. You know, incidentally, Kuchma was involved in the Minsk II process. So actually, the Atlantic Council would be on the other side. But regardless, these aren't impartial actors necessarily. I mean, my God, Ukraine is just a, it's a crazy, crazy country with regards to oligarchical factions moving from one side to the other. 
you know, it's derisory, the idea there's some good guys and bad guys in terms of the country's elite, because they swap sides, you know, so frequently, it's hard to keep up. So skepticism is very useful. And like I say, that thing about intelligence, is it signals intelligence? Okay, then take that seriously. Is it human intelligence? Well, who are the sources? Do they have an agenda of their own? And if it's neither of those two, if it's just analysis, as John Sawyer said, uh, to Ben Judah, then you should just dismiss it out of hand. And the best approach and you'll hear this, I think, frequently with people on YouTube. You know, you'd hear it from Russell Brand or somebody on the radical right or Glenn Greenwald or you and me or an ultra leftist. The best approach generally with these things is to have a range of news sources. So I always say to people, you know, read The Economist, read The Times, read the FT, get the newsletters, read stuff from The Telegraph. I mean, it's a hell of a lot of work, right? Maybe narrow it down. Read Navarra Media. Look at domestic uh, media content coming out of these countries. Finally, the big problem in getting good information when it comes to Russia and what it views as its sphere of influence or China and its sphere of influence is that we have very few journalists in this country who either speak Russian or Chinese. We certainly don't, Michael. You have a few very good Russian speakers at the BBC, but other than that, not really. And so actually, journalists capable of doing that skeptical, hard, nuanced work, engaging with the primary sources, very difficult, very rarely exists. So what we're left with instead is pundits, often with a vested interest in a certain outcome, uh, or, or even just not taking, you know, it's the sources they're receiving skeptically. That's not good enough if you want to be informed. I mean, I suppose I'd, I'd add a couple of things, which is what people might say to us who are less critical of, of, of the American or, or UK defense establishments or NATO, for example, they'd say you're playing into Putin's hands because precisely what he wants isn't so much people in the West to say, oh, Putin is great. It's for people in the West to throw their hands up and say, well, I've got no idea what's going on. So I'm going to be completely you know, nihilistic about this. Who knows the truth? So I'm going to sort of abstain from even taking any judgment. Now, I do think that there could be something to that. And so I would say, don't just distrust everything. <laughs> Obviously, you have to have a skeptical attitude to, to all of these things we're hearing, especially when it comes from any government intelligence agency. Because as you've seen, both from that former MI6 chief and that former chief of, of the US defense staff, they're quite openly using these briefings as a, a method of warfare. Now, that could be justified. You could say, look, if, if by talking about a false flag operation, you make a false flag less likely, that's potentially justifiable from a you know, a strategic point of view. But at the same time, you have to, you know, be aware that that's probably what's going on, right? So so you are being played in a way, whether it's justified for them to play you is a, is a slightly separate question. I'd say the easiest way to get grounding in sort of foreign policy questions is basically to ground yourself in recent history, because who is where right now in eastern Ukraine, who's firing what missile, I think it's going to be, however long I spend on the internet this evening, it's going to be very difficult for me to work it out. Working out what are the different grievances on each, on each side, what deals were made, why Russia is annoyed about the, the expansion of NATO, why the Ukrainians might want to be part of a Western alliance. All of these things we do have a much deeper understanding of because they're, they're not just reliant on he said, she said. So I do think that grounding in recent history, which is actually something that the mainstream media is, is, is terrible at getting across because they always start the story wherever it makes the other guys look bad. So they start the story. 2014, Putin didn't like the pro-Western government in Ukraine. So he started invading. He took Crimea and he made sure the country would be collapsed for the next eight years or however long it's been. What that ignores is that before that, you had a situation where the EU said to Ukraine, look, you can't have relations both with the EU and Russia economically. You're going to have to choose. They put them in a very difficult situation. They also didn't give 
the Ukrainian president a particularly good deal. So they turned to Russia. That prompted an uprising and what can reasonably be called a coup, even though, again, you could say that was justified because the president at the time had, had shot on protesters. All I'm here to say, I'm not going to give you a short history of Ukraine because it is incredibly complicated, but it is grounding, grounding your understanding, grounding your knowledge in recent history that I think really helps with that. I do actually recommend on this front, Adam Tooze has a great blog where he goes into sort of the, the past 10 years in Ukraine, which is much less biased and sort of simplistic and a sort of Manichaean, there's good guys and bad guys than you will see even on the BBC, especially obviously in, in the Times and, and from the government. I think you've put it superbly, Michael, the whole Manichaean good guys, bad guys, that rarely exists in life. It certainly doesn't exist in post-Soviet states and their politics, like really more than anywhere else. So uh, yeah, it's, it's the piety and the self-righteousness and the surety that people have with their kind of takes can be very, very grating. And it is just remarkable how little you can learn from the media. You know, if you want to be uninformed about things like Russia, Ukraine, like you say, watch the BBC go on the Guardian website, read the Times. Like I say, you want to read a, a wide range of sources. If you're time limited, you're wasting your time there. It's like, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to make sense of anything, really. Like you say, Maidan in 2014, was, it was a coup. There, there, there clearly were people getting involved in that, leveraging it in certain ways to maximize their interests. Now, like you say, it's also legitimate because you had protesters being fired on by the government, so it's very complicated. But when we talk about the various oligarchs which go from one side to the other. A lot of these sort of post-Soviet freedom fighters who are on the same side as the color revolutions, great deal of them, not just in Ukraine, but many other countries too, were actually the key guys in the Soviet apparatus before the fall of the Berlin Wall and before 1990, and it all changed. You know, these were party men. So it is very, very complicated at the best of times. And what I would say to our audience is, of course, inform yourself, Adam Tooze is always a good place to start virtually anything, Michael. But also that the Russophobia and the Sinophobia, I think, is just really deeply unhelpful. And I think it also helps, one more thing, try and put your, 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 yourself in the shoes of somebody who's in receipt of state media in Russia or China and, and try and think how they think. Russia has been invaded in the last 200 years three times. You've got Napoleon, you've got after the revolution in 1920, and of course you have by the Third Reich after 1940-41. And so within the Russian psyche, there is actually a perfectly understandable and I think legitimate fear of invasion by very powerful countries. And so that can be leveraged by a domestic political elite to say, look, we have to get involved in Ukraine because we, we're going to have NATO and we're going to have US soldiers on our doorstep in a country which we historically view as part of Russian civilization. You don't have to agree with that or, or not. But my point is, that's what many, many people themselves believe in Russia. So read Adam Seuss, be skeptical, and also, yeah, don't do the whole bigotry othering of Russians or Chinese or Iranians or whoever it is the BBC doesn't like this week. And don't like Ian Day or call anyone with a different perspective to the UK government a fifth column, which he did last night on LBC. Completely disgraceful stuff. Last month, the Sue Gray report into Downing Street parties was spiked in case it prejudiced a police investigation. It was a suspicious move, especially as the police didn't explain how releasing the report would prejudice anything. There was one half-decent explanation I heard at the time, though. It was that if Sue Gray published her report, those under investigation would be able to craft their answers to be consistent with whatever she found. And by keeping the report secret, they wouldn't be able to do so. Well, 
that already tenuous justification has now been blown completely out of the water. ITV's Paul Brand has revealed that number 10 staff, including the Prime Minister, will be able to see interview notes Sue Gray's team made about them before they fill out their police questionnaires. In a letter to Downing Street staff, Sue Gray wrote, I appreciate that this is a worrying time for those affected by this process, which I do not wish to compound. In light of particular circumstances surrounding this set of events, I have, as an exceptional measure, decided that individuals may be provided with limited access to the notes. She also admits this is not a standard practice saying the focus for individuals should be on completing the police questionnaire within the timeline given. Access to notes from previous interviews are not necessary to do this, nor is it standard practice in internal investigations such as this to share or agree such notes with interviewees. So if it's not necessary to show these people notes from the report before they answer the police questions, and if it's not standard practice, why is she doing it? If the whole point was the Sue Gray report couldn't be released in case it prejudiced the investigation by showing the people under investigation by the police what to say and what not to say. Obviously, if it's not in the Sue Gray report, they go, well, I'm not going to admit that to the police, am I? They don't want to contradict what's in her report because then they can get into even more trouble. So while no one else can see the Sue Gray report, the only people who can see it are the people for whom seeing it might prejudice the investigation. Aaron, can you make this make sense? Michael, you're the smart one. You make sense of it for me, please. I know you ask questions. You're the host, but come on. Well, it doesn't make any sense. So I suppose the question is, if you were, you know, Sue Gray's PR person, how would you possibly sell this to people? Because it's it's so ridiculous as to... She's saying it's not usual for people to see the notes of an interview they've done in one investigation before they speak to another one. But I'm going to yeah. do it anyway. Yeah, the only state agency that normally is allowed to do that is cops. And it's normally an, it's normally evidence of them being bent. That mm. they can, I mean, they're not meant to, but often they'll see they'll see the notes of colleagues before they write their own so they have stories which align relating to a certain event. From what I gather, not meant to, but they do. I mean, and it tends to be a, an indicator of corruption. So this is kind of a twist on that. But you think Sue Gray should have a PR person? Michael, she's a civil servant. This isn't Ash Sarkar. Not everybody has an agent, Michael. I think you've got all this fame It's getting to your head. Well, I'm sure with all her fame, she must have someone doing comms. I don't, someone leaked this to ITV, so there are presumably some people who are unhappy about this. I do have one theory as to why this might be happening, which is that I reckon she let Boris Johnson see it. So she let Boris Johnson see the notes so he could craft his... This is complete speculation, by the way. So that he could craft his answers. And then she was worried that one of the... Someone else in Downing Street would be pissed off about this. Like, why did Boris Johnson get to see the notes? But I didn't get to see the notes. And now she's mm. sent this email saying, it's kind of weird for me to send you the notes, but I'm going to do it anyway. And she hoped that that would keep them all quiet because it was in their interest to see the notes before they, they went to the police. I feel like that could potentially be the sequence of events. Although obviously that's not justification mm. for it. That's just an explanation of what she might be thinking here. Who's going to call it out? Lib Dems? Keir Starmer certainly isn't. You know, Mr. Vic's vapor rub. He's not. <laughs> well, he loves calling He's out not. this kind of stuff. This is his bread and butter. He loves this. A civil servant. A civil ser He's going to call a civil servant Ben. Okay. Really? Sorry, no, you're right. You're right. No, 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 you're right. I, I, uh, I take your point. He will only call out someone who is an elected Tory politician. The moment it's the establishment, the moment it's the civil service, the moment it's the, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Starmer will not criticize them. Big, big flaw in his politics, which is just sort of institutionally pro-establishment, emotionally pro-establishment. He can't bear to criticize what are supposed to be neutral bodies, but very clearly aren't. Let's go to our next story. 
Angela Rayner has said she thinks cops should shoot terrorists first and ask questions later. She made the suggestion on Matt Ford's political party podcast. Let's have a listen. The perception of you would be that you're on the left of the party, that you are um, very sort of soft to hard left. Yeah, I love that term, soft left, bit soft. <laughs> Is that how you describe yourself? I mean... I mean, most people recognise soft left, so I would describe myself as soft left. But I, you know what, on certain things I'm not, though, because on things like law and order, I'm, like, quite hard line. I'm, like, you know, shoot the terrorists and ask a question second in the morning. <laughs> I, I, I'm, like, sorry. No, God, they like, like the it. Most, that's the most controversial thing I've ever no, said. No, absolutely not. Angela, that might well be the most controversial thing you've ever said, and for good reason. Diane Abbott said this in response. Is Angela suggesting a mandatory death sentence for suspected but not convicted terrorists? Tory MP David Davis agreed, saying, we need our security services to make the right decision, not a shoot first, ask questions later decision. This kind of heavy-handed approach cost John Charles de Menezes his life. I wonder if the former director of public prosecutions would back such a move at Keir Starmer. Davis is right. It was a reckless failure on the part of the police to ask questions that led them to kill this man, 27-year-old Jean-Charles de Menezes. He was believed to be a terrorist on shoddy circumstantial evidence. The police shot dead the young electrician as he sat on the tube at Stockwell Station. We've recently covered the killing of Menezes in some detail, but he's not the first nor the last innocent person to be killed by the police because they failed to get their facts straight before firing their guns. In September 1999, Harry Stanley went to his brother's house to try and fix a broken table. He realised the broken leg would need repairs, which he could only do at home, and so the Glaswegian painter and decorator wrapped it in a bag and set off home. On the way, he stopped in a pub, the Alexandra in Hackney, placing the table leg on the bar, he drank a lemonade. What he didn't know is that a panicky bystander was already calling the police. Mistaking his Scottish accent for an Irish one, noting his red hair, and taking the table leg to be a sawn-off shotgun, the caller had somehow decided that Stanley was an IRA terrorist. As Stanley left the pub, two specialist armed response officers arrived on the scene. They shouted, armed police, drop the gun. He slowly turned around to face them, and they shot him twice, once through the hand and then in the head. He died immediately, less than 100 yards from his house, where his wife and their two-year-old grandson were waiting for him. Only 10 days before, he'd had life-saving surgery for cancer. The police, of course, tried to smear the innocent man they'd killed. This is from the Scottish Daily Record in April the following year. Police have told the widow of a Scott gunned down mine barksman that her husband was the victim of a bizarre suicide. They claim Harry Stanley, 46, had a death wish when he walked through the streets of London armed with a coffee table leg in a plastic bag. Harry's family last night accused investigating officers of a massive cover-up after they suggested he deliberately put himself in the line of fire because he had cancer. Police told the family's lawyer that a line of inquiry was that Harry was depressed because of illness and wanted to lure police into a confrontation in the street. Aaron, I want to bring you in on this. Angela Rayner saying, you know, police should shoot first, ask questions later. What, what's she thinking? Why is she saying this? The police already are allowed to shoot and they're allowed to kill somebody if there's an imminent threat to life. This is not a political dividing line, as I understand it, Michael. You know, nobody's saying when there's the London Bridge attack and 
there's an armed shooter and they're shooting and people could be losing their lives. Nobody is saying you don't have armed police deployed. Nobody's saying that. As I understand, I could be wrong, but that's not a dividing line in politics. Where there is a dividing line is to say you have to have sufficient reason to kill somebody. And that's why it's not shoot first. You have to think before you shoot. Like I say, there has to be, there has to be a plausible threat to human life. This guy walking around with a, the leg of a coffee table, I mean, clearly isn't that. So this is one of those imaginary dividing lines, which is kind of concocted by right-wing radio shock jocks like Ian Dale and the tabloid press. And it doesn't help Labour, even if Angela Rayner is on the right of the party. I mean, she says she's on the soft left, but on, on law and order, she's on the right. I mean, fine, knock yourself out. But as a Labour politician, I don't see how it helps you to repeat this putrid nonsense, which has absolutely no grounding in reality. Then you see it repeated by Carl Turner, uh, a Hull MP, a very sh- strange online persona that he's cultivated. He's, he's on £80,000 a year, yet seems to think he's working class. And saying that, oh, it's because working class people don't have much time for terrorists and thugs, you know, good on, good on Angela. This isn't the reality of crime, Michael. You know, something like one in 20 burglaries end in a prosecution at the moment. We know that. It large swathes the country for almost all crimes. There is no punishment. Just a fact. Look at sexual assault statistics. You know, if you've had your bike nicked in London, it's basically not a crime. You know, you might get a police reference number if that. Okay, that's the reality of crime in this country. It's being mugged and nothing happening, or it's somebody nicking your bike, or it's somebody smashing the window of your shop. That's the reality of crime. But for some reason, Michael, Labour politicians in particular have to kind of float off into this imaginary fantasy world. You aren't an extra in season two of The Bodyguard on BBC. It is not armed police shooting down a gunman. That is not the reality of crime. And I think it doesn't help them politically to frame law and order in that way. It seems to me that you, you're just basically conceding the, the, the rhetorical and the ideological ground to the right, to the worst people in British public life. I think you're, you're absolutely right to say, you know, it's a non-problem. No one's saying if, if there is an active shooter, don't shoot them. No one's saying that. Maybe shoot them in the leg. You, know, don't, you don't necessarily have to shoot them to kill. I don't know. I'm not, you know I'm, I don't work in operations in the anti-terror police. There is one side of the political divide that says, don't under any circumstances kill a terrorist before you put them on trial. And another side who is the realist who say, no, you should, you should. And this is a real problem. This is a real argument we have to have. It's just ridiculous. Like I asked on Twitter today, because I had the thought, are there any deaths from terrorism in the UK that happened because cops weren't trigger happy enough? Like this would be a problem, I think. If we could point to a situation, there were a bunch of people who got killed by a terrorist who didn't need to get killed because the police you know, we're saying, well, if I kill them, maybe I'll have to fill in too many forms. That hasn't, <laughs> no one found me an example. I wasn't expecting one. And I'd get a really good reply from Immolations. He said, a lot of the supposed ethical dilemmas that get thrown up in these discussions have no real bearing on reality. Like similarly, the ticking time bomb used to justify torture came about and was popularized in a French novel. It's just nonsense, really. I thought that was such a well put point. Because you remember with that, with that torture debate, oh, but would you torture someone if you needed to torture them to stop a, an atrocity that was about to happen? It's like, well, is it an interesting ethical question? But I mean, it's potentially an interesting ethical question. It has absolutely nothing to do with counterterrorism because this isn't an example that happens in real life. And it's exactly the same with, would you shoot a terrorist even if you hadn't put them on trial yet? Like, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting ethical question. Well, if, if you're into that kind of thing. It has nothing to do with anti-terrorism. It actually has nothing to do with law and order. So it's just this complete non sequitur, but which ends up like dominating the political debate and really just pulling down the political debate to a level which is just kind of stupid, essentially. 
stupid, asinine. You know, it's like saying, Michael, somebody might be a security expert, right? And rather than talk to them about, okay, well, what are the threats of asymmetric warfare in the 21st century and, you know, and uh, informational warfare? And is that really a new novel weapon that we've seen in the last 20, 30 years outgrowth of the internet or has it always existed? You know, rather than that, you say, who'd win in a fight between 30 kangaroos and five members of the SNS? (laughs) It's an interesting question, isn't it? (laughs) Who would win? And that's basically the level we're talking on here, right? Well, if there was a ticking time bomb, would you would you talk to somebody? Because they might, you know, this is like with, you know, 24 or with Jack Reacher or with Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible. That isn't the real world. This isn't Hollywood. Carl Turner, you're the MP for Hull. I can't think of places. I'm, I'm on the south coast in Portsmouth. We're not, in, we're not in LA, guys. Okay? The reality of crime is super, super different. So get off your little fantasy fairy tale rage treadmill. Uh, and and join the rest of us and maybe try and solve some real world problems. It's also worth noting, actually, I think, because this, this row as well, I think Angela Rayner is, is trying to say, I'm not like Jeremy Corbyn, because obviously there was that big headline, Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't have shot to kill, I think it was the London Bridge attackers, was it at that point in time? But then Laura Koonsberg had to actually apologise for that interview because she like edited it wrong. So it looked like he was answering a question which she hadn't asked and then you know she switched it around so the controversy here that the whole idea that there are some people on the left who think that if you've got an active terrorist shooter you shouldn't shoot them was fabricated from the start and that's what Angela Rayner is is playing into here which I suppose we've come to expect from from Keir Starmer and basically anyone in his shadow cabinet right now that's that's their modus operandi Keir Starmer wants to dump key aspects of the 2019 manifesto. That's according to City AM, who report this exclusive Starmer to back away from 2019 Labour manifesto with series of key speeches. They probably didn't need to call this an exclusive. It's the kind of thing we've known for a while. In any case, from the article City AM say... A senior Labour Party source told City AM that Starmer is expected to slaughter the sacred cows of Corbynism in the lead-up to summer. With speculation, this could soon include ditching the former Labour leaders' pledges to nationalise rail, mail, energy and water. As I've said, none of this is surprising. Keir Starmer has shown time and time again that his only pitch to the country is, I'm not Jeremy Corbyn, and his only policy positions are, whatever the left wants, I'll do the opposite. But there's... A problem with positing this shift to the right as just slaughtering the sacred cows of Corbynism, because they were also the sacred cows of Keir Starmer. This is one of 10 pledges he made during his leadership campaign. It's still available on his website. So it's pledge five, common ownership. Public services should be in public hands, not making profits for shareholders. Support common ownership of rail, mail, energy and water and outsourcing in our NHS, local government and justice system. Since making that pledge, Keir Starmer has attempted to suggest it didn't imply nationalisation. For example, last year when speaking to Andrew Marr. I don't see nationalisation there. What else does does public hands mean? There's a world, well, well, public services should be in public hands. But when it comes to something like energy, we've got an immediate problem in the next few months that we've got to solve. And then when it comes to common ownership, I'm pragmatic about this. I do not agree with the argument that says um, we must be ideological. No one makes the argument we must be ideological. That's just not an argument anyone makes. There, there was no ambiguity, though, during the leadership debate on Newsnight. I'm asking you to raise your hands. When you go into the next election, would you have any of these in your manifesto, potentially? First of all, raise your hands if you're into scrapping tuition fees. 
That's everyone. Renationalizing water and electricity. Yeah. Of course, we're used to Keir Starmer going back on his word. In his now infamous 10 pledges, he promised to put human rights at the heart of Britain's foreign policy, then abstained on the Overseas Operation Bill, which effectively allows British troops stationed abroad to use torture. He pledged to defend freedom of movement, which Labour have now explicitly abandoned, and he promised to unite the party before spending two years relentlessly attacking the left. The latest chapter in that assault involves Starmer's predecessor, The Sunday Times suggested last week that the Labour leadership are plotting to oust Jeremy Corbyn from Parliament. They report there is no mechanism available to deselect Corbyn other than the trigger mechanism under which his local party would have to vote for a new contest, which he would then have to lose. As a popular local MP, this will not pose a threat to him. However, a senior party insider said, we are determined to bring this to a head. The current position is not sustainable. A source close to Keir Starmer said there was no chance he would bring back Corbyn and that his time in the Labour Party was effectively over. Even if Corbyn apologises for his comments, as was demanded by Nick Brown, the former chief whip, it is understood that the party would find a pretext for continuing his suspension. The belief on the part of Starmer and his allies is presumably that a high-profile fight with Corbyn will only further convince the public that the party has changed but they might be underestimating the size of the Labour core vote who quite like the previous leader. A YouGov poll at the end of last year showed that among 2019 Labour voters, Corbyn enjoyed the largest support of any former party leader. 68% had a positive attitude towards him, compared to only 36% for Starmer. Perhaps Sakir would be more popular among Labour voters if he was less obviously dishonest. Aaron, it feels like we've had this conversation many times before because Keir Starmer keeps doing these briefings where he says, I'm going to completely shit all over Jeremy Corbyn and everything he ever stood for after standing in the leadership and saying, I'm going to bring the best from Tony Blair and the best from Jeremy Corbyn and respect everyone. Have we learned anything new from from this particular briefing? It's worse than you thought. That's what we've learned, Michael. I mean, I'm kind of entertained actually by how bad he is at this stuff. He was asked a question by some young people in Sunderland or a journalist, I can't remember what it was, it was the sort of atmosphere of young people and and they said, how will you provide security for young people? And he said, well, oh no, sorry, how will you, yeah, how will you give security to young people? He said, I will give security to young people by making them feel secure. It's like, who the hell is this guy? Can you, is this guy really, is this really going to be a robust candidate in a general election campaign facing down Linson Crosby? Because it might not be Boris Johnson in charge. It might be somebody else. But the Tories do election campaigns really well. You really want somebody like that? Keir Starmer, well, public, there's a world of difference between public ownership and uh, nationalization. Really? Okay. Well, tell me. Well, we don't want to be ideological about this. It's just you're not even answering the question. And like I said at the time, Michael, it wasn't just that he was lying. He'd, he'd, li- he'd gone back on his promise. You, you might not call that lying, whatever. It wasn't just that he was lying. He was then lying about lying on TV in front of everybody, where there was literally evidence on a television behind him showing that he was lying. And I, I sort of wonder about somebody like that. I mean, he's obviously got to the top of his profession. He's obviously, he's obviously a very talented lawyer. Maybe he's just so good at convincing himself of things, even when it's so completely at odds with the facts, because that's your job, right? As a barrister and a, a, you know, as a lawyer often, you're having to argue that case, make that case in as compelling and robust a case as you can. This isn't how it works in politics because you're having to persuade people using facts and feelings, preferably more facts and feelings, but it's, you know, we have to be real, it's a bit of both. And on both counts, he fails. You know, he doesn't really establish strong feelings in anyone. The best defense for Starmer is he makes 
people less angry than Corbyn. Okay, fine. Does he infuse anybody? I mean, is that really going to be enough to be prime minister? I suspect not. We could be wrong. There's two years to go. He could get better. But on his talent as a politician, his proclivity to lie, his dislikability, his dishonesty, his absence of policy and ideas, his inability to bring a team together. You know, you saw that with the treatment of Angela Rayner after last May's local election results. I, I just don't see what there is with this guy. I don't see what there is. Even with Yvette Cooper, who went on um, the BBC politics show on Sunday, not the Mar show. I don't know what the hell they call it anymore. It's as crap as it always was with Sophie Rayworth. And even Yvette Cooper was really pulling her punches when, when Sophie Rayworth was trying to trap her on, on Corbyn and on policy changes. You know, she boxed clever in a way that Starmer can't. I don't really understand why this guy, as I like to call him, Captain Poptart, is held up by the Parliamentary Labour Party as the best they've got. Because he clearly isn't. Even if you're on the right of the party or the soft left, he clearly isn't. And at this point, they're flying on the back of his CV. And I think the big test for him is if, if they don't do well in May, and they may do, you know, we've still got several months. National polling has been generally good for Labour. It's going down recently, but let's see. It's such a dynamic situation with the Downing Street parties and Boris Johnson. If they don't do well, then I do think Labour politicians, particularly those in marginals, will think, look, you know, maybe this isn't the guy for us. And from the other side, from the Labour right, people like Peter Mandelson and so on, they view him as 1987 redux anyway. They view him as somebody who will make inroads into the Tory majority and then they get a leader further to his right and afterwards, whether that's for the next time or the one after. It's not about solving problems. It's not, look, if you're, if you're a renter, if you're worried about high energy bills, if you're worried about crime, if you're about any of these issues, or your student debt, you're about to see your interest payments go up because they're bringing the threshold of repayment down, he's not going to solve any of this. I can tell you this now. He's not going to do anything. I know you disagree about this, Michael. You're like, no, they have a really substantive policy agenda. I just don't think so. Peter Manderson was the head of communications for the, for the Labour Party in the 1987 general election, very young man in his early 30s at the time. I really think he and his cronies are looking at the next general election as 87 Redux. It's exactly what they're trying to do. It's about distancing yourselves from the previous guy, bringing the big funders in. And really, I think they'll be focusing on getting right-wing MPs in for the next 5, 10, 15 years. That's the project for them. And I think left-wingers, quote unquote, I don't think, I don't think anybody that voted Starmer in on the left who doesn't regret their decision. I don't think you are on the left. I mean, I'm not the universal font of truth. So you can disagree with me if you like, but I really think that was a very unwise choice. And I personally would regret it if I was them. I think the idea that somehow Starmer is going to lead to a more left-wing party or the party will be more left-wing after him, no way. The composition of the Labour Party is going to go significantly right now over the next five, five, ten years, certainly over the next five years, unless something very drastically goes wrong for the, for the right and the people in charge of the party. Last May, it looked like that may well be the case. Now I'm not so sure. Let's wrap it up there. We'll be back on Monday at 7 p.m. Have a great weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.